And welcome back to the Art of Fuel podcast, a subset of the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel. I am joined today by another Anthony, Dr. Anthony Chafee, who I am so, so stoked to talk about. I have been binging his Plant Free MD podcast, listening to every episode that I can find, downloading all the episodes on YouTube. And uh, for the, just a quick little overview of who this fine doctor is in front of us. He is an American medical doctor and neurosurgical resident who over a span of 20 plus years has researched the optimal nutrition for human performance and health. It is his assertion that most of the so-called chronic diseases that we treat as doctors are caused by the food we eat or don't eat and can be reversed with dietary changes to a species specific diet. And if I am correct, based on the plant-free MD, your assertion that the species specific diet is a carnivorous diet. An all meat uh, yeah. diet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's borne out very strongly by the data and the evidence that we look back through the fossil record and, and uh, anthropological records as well, but really the, the fossil record. And that's, that sort of hit a switch around uh, the end of the last ice age when the, the, the megafauna sort of all died off. Some areas around the world probably weren't able to hunt in, in sufficient uh, amounts that they could sustain their societies. And so they switched over to agriculture. Agriculture came up independently around seven different areas. Uh, but the rest of the world were really just eating meat. We're still just hunting. The Native Americans were hunting buffalo. There were hundreds of millions of buffalo across America mm-hmm. and the Great Plains. And they would come by and they would scare, you know, a, a a number of them over a cliff. They would, it's called a buffalo drop, and they would uh, harvest their bodies at the bottom. Uh, they did, we have evidence that we were doing this with mammoths, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands and, and millions of years ago. So this is something that, that we've been doing for a very long time. And I think that that is what benefits us the most. All animals in nature, they eat a very specific diet. They don't eat this big, wide range of things. And specifically, they don't eat a wide range of plants. And the reason being is that Plants are living organisms. In fact, they're the dominant kingdom of life on Earth. Most of the biomass on Earth, over 80% of the biomass on Earth is plants. And if you don't consider bacteria, it's it's probably closer to 97, 99% of the biomass is just plants. So these are the dominant species. How do they become that? They're they're under constant assault by animals and insects and even, even fungi. So why, why are they still around? Well, that's because they have inherent and innate defenses. They're not kinetic. They can't run away or fight back. So they need other defenses. And some of that defenses is sequestering these nutrients in ways that we can't access and absorb. So we don't get any nutrition from it or very little. And the other way is by actually being poisonous and having toxins in them that damage animals and insects that are trying to eat them. And so if you haven't evolved to eat a specific plant, that plant is bad for you. You don't have the necessary enzymes to detoxify those those poisons. And so they, they can be quite harmful. And so seeing as that our ancestors for the last at least 2 million years have been as pure carnivore as it is possible to get. I'm sure they probably ate some plants every now and then sometimes if they were starving, but during the ice ages, you know, what plants were there to, to eat? It was just, it was just meat. It was just animals. And some people will say, well, during the ice ages, we, we scurried down towards the equator. That's actually not true. The fossil record is quite clear that we actually went up into the ice during the ice ages because that's where the megafauna was. That's where the mammoths were. That's where the things that we wanted to hunt were. And so that's uh, not the case. And so we were living during these ice times, just like the Inuit now, 
they're just eating meat because that's what they they had available and you even look at the the explorer uh records from coming to north america or going to australia and all of the Europeans were just marveling how these people had access to plants, but didn't eat plants. They didn't grow crops and <laughs> do anything. Some areas, you know, like Mesoamerica, they had you know maize, but most of the areas they were just hunting. And even in the in the sort of northern America, bordering Canada, New England area, I remember reading an account, you know, back in high school, where they were talking about the Native Americans, and they said, "Okay, well, we get it. You know, it's it's this is back in the 1700s during the, the Little Ice Age, so it was much colder. You know, like Canada was really uninhabitable at that point, and uh, there was just fur trappers and, and Inuit that were up there, and so they were saying, like, well, okay, well, I get it. You know, like it, it's during the ice, you really can't grow anything. You have to eat meat, but in the southern areas, you know, for a few months out of the year, it thaws out. Like, surely they could live off the bounty of the land at that point, right?" And, but they said they didn't, they, ate, they still only ate meat and they, they were just marveling at that. So this is something that we, that we see and we see those populations actually quite a lot healthier at the time. They said they weren't getting Western diseases, diseases of the West. These are things that people in Europe got, but the North Americans didn't get it. Native Australians didn't get it until they started being incorporated into Western society and started eating Western food. And that was actually something I learned I think when I was about seven, I saw on a news program, it said, um, when eating a Western diet, Native Americans are four times as likely to get obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and all the rest. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, well, doesn't that mean the food is causing the disease? Because, <laughs> yeah, right. No, right. Because if they don't eat the food, they don't get the disease. That was, that was the, the qualifiers. If eating, if when eating a Western diet. And mm. so if they don't eat food, they don't get the disease. And we eat the food and we get the disease. We just get it at a lower rate, you know? And then what are, what's a non-Western diet? What are they eating that we're not and vice versa? Well, I didn't say it at the time, but there was a, it was a carnivorous diet, just eating buffalo and seals and things like that. And that's what we notice here in Australia as well. The native Australians historically were very healthy, lived a very long time, had perfect teeth, didn't have obesity and, and diabetes and all the rest. Now it's plaguing the population. And that's because... Europeans have had agriculture for eight to 10,000 years, depending on your, your source that you're looking at. And they haven't, you know, they, they were introduced to this in the last couple hundred years. So they don't even have the, the modicum of defenses that we've developed over that 10,000 years. But, you know, so they get much more sick. And so, you know, when I first came to Australia to practice medicine, I was told if you see a, a native Australian Aboriginal come in, Whatever age this says on their sticker, consider them 20 years older because that's just how quickly they age. And they'll get the, you know, 40 year old will be getting the diseases that you'd normally see in a 60 year old uh, of, of European descent. And so I think that's a testament to eating the wrong thing. When you, so you think the reason that they age faster, they have that advanced aging, is because they have a longer history of eating their species appropriate diet and they haven't had the exposure to the agricultural revolution that maybe genetic mm -hmm. adaptation over time to be able to handle it to some degree. I do remember in one of your interviews as well, you were mentioning that around the time of the agricultural revolution, we also saw a serious decline in human gray matter overall. And yeah. like there was a significant decline in cognitive function, um, yeah. which is really, really interesting. 
Uh, a few of the are now for context here, I am not, I haven't adapted a fully carnivorous diet, but I'm very, very interested. The more that I learn about it, the more arguments that are put forward, the more health outcomes that I see, it's really incredible. And so overall, I'm coming from a place where I'm already convinced the science and the the anecdotes and everything that that is kind of coming forward, it's all sound logic to me. What I'm going to do in this conversation is I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, right? Because sure. uh, nutrition is a very polarizing topic. People get more worked up emotionally about their opinions on nutrition than they do about their opinions on religion and politics sometimes. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to humor a lot of people who I know who have differing opinions and concerns about a zero carbohydrate and a zero plant approach. Um, and I'm going to start with some of the ideas around evolutionary biology. One of them being, uh, you know, some of the physiological features that human beings have don't necessarily fully resemble carnivores. For example, the amylase enzyme in our saliva um, might suggest that we, uh, you know, this is an argument that people use for a frugivorous, a fruit Uh, eating principally. Yeah. Yeah, Frugivores. Yeah. Like a fruit. Yeah. So, so that sort of uh, like almost like a pre-human ancestor, we had this frugivorous past and then we had to eat meat sort of has this survival adaptation, but you're, you know, even the, even what you talked about in terms of the fossil records suggests that, okay, well, we, we preferentially pursued meat, you know, over, you know, looking, going towards the equator to find these plants. Um, do you think that because we have this adaptation to digest carbohydrates, it, are there adaptations that human beings have to digest carbohydrates that would suggest that carbohydrates were a part of our diet and might even be beneficial to our diet? So um, there, there are a lot of different ways of looking at all these things. And I think that uh, it's obviously important to you. And I'm, I, you know, please do push back as hard as you can, because I don't, I don't want people to think that like, well, you're just giving straw man, like they're laying up some softballs and things like that, because it's, it's very difficult to get uh, people on the opposing side of this discussion to have a discussion. You know, it, it's very <laughs> difficult for people to sort of risk their reputation. And, and I do like those conversations. I think they're very productive. And I like, so I please do, throw out as, as tough questions as you can. Um, as far as amylase. So we do come from an herbivorous past, right? But we are primates. We have primates with carnivorous adaptations because about 8 million years ago, eight to, you know, six to 8 million years ago, we started, our ancestors started eating meat. They started eating more and more meat and they split off evolutionarily. Okay. But they were still eating plants. They came from that plant-based background. And this is why we still have some, ability to break down, you know, certain plant toxins and things like that. But as I learned in seventh grade, plants and animals are in an evolutionary arms race, literally taught seventh grade biology, plants and animals are in an evolutionary arms race, plants becoming more and more poisonous. So less and less animals can eat them so they can survive and thrive. And then animals becoming more and more adapted to being able to detoxify those specific poisons in those specific plants so they can eat them safely. So if you get out of that evolutionary arms race, you might still he- stay here. Maybe you were adapted to those things six, eight million years ago. Maybe you lost some of them. But let's say you kept all of them. Well, the plants are still moving, right? And you're holding still. And so you may have some ability to to weather the storm, but you're not going to be as good as you know an elephant eating its natural diet. But an elephant eating other plants that it's not adapted to, that they can kill it, right? So that's that's something to think about. Amylase in particular. There's, there's no particular reason why we wouldn't uh, benefit from having 
retained the ability to secrete amylase. So when you have a genetic trait to do something, you don't lose that unless there's an, an unless there's a survival advantage to losing it. Mm. So you can have right. a lot of things that that are left over. Like people, one of the one of the arguments to say is like, well, our jaw can move side to side. That's something you really see in herbivores, right? Because they can. They sort of mill the the grains and and uh, not really grains, but fiber, and they sort of mill it down like a millstone. And uh, well, if there isn't an evolutionary advantage to losing that, then then there's no there's no no pressure selection pressure to do so, right? So that can be the same thing with amylase. And in fact, having that bit of an that bit of a holdover adaptation and even the ability to eat some plants when in extremis, that would certainly provide a, a survival advantage. You know, if you can't get meat, if you can't get food and you're starving, you are more, you, you are more fit to survive if you have other, other sources of food as well. You know, a lion, if it can't get meat, it's dead, right? They're obligate carnivores. They really, almost every plant will kill any feline. They're, they're, they're very, very sensitive to these things. They've been carnivores for a very long time. Canines slightly less, right? But chocolate will kill a dog, right? And so it doesn't kill us. But what does that mean? That means there's toxins in, in chocolate that we're able to detoxify better than a dog, but a dog after a certain threshold, it will kill it. So that will confer a survival advantage to us to be able to get different uh, nutrients as well. But that doesn't mean that those nutrients are optimal. And that doesn't mean that there isn't anything else that comes with those nutrients that are detrimental. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, again, continue to play devil's advocate because this is an argument that even uh, some former, you know, zero carb carnivores like Paul Saladino and, and mm -hmm. some of the other people who are kind of moving away from just protein and fat, um, you know, the argument that fruit, for example, is a plant mm -hmm. that it, it's it's beneficial to be eaten by other animals because then you, you poop out the seeds and then it propagates the plant. Um, and, you know, things like honey, for example, well, we have these sweet sensors on our taste buds. We, we, we preferentially seek out naturally uh, sweetness, right? And so there's this uh, almost physiological drive because of the, you know, the dopamine reward that we get from it. There's, there's maybe some basis for why we would want to seek out sweet things, why we have the, you know, the color vision that we have to be able to spot different fruits. Um, you know, what, what are some takes from that perspective? It's like, is it, be, is it the same sort of mentality because there wasn't a negative selection pressure to lose some of these traits that we would still have a preferential taste for carbohydrates or what's your, what's your kind of take on that? Does, does, fruit kind of land in that same category of the evolutionary arms race to mm -hmm. not be eaten. Mm -hmm. So the, um, as far as, you know, not having some selection pressure to just lose the color vision would certainly land in that, in that category. You know, I mean, the, you have to have a direct reason to change it. But in fact, in fact, a lot of people have lost color vision because color vision, if you, if you have seen more in black and white, then you have better night vision, you have better vision in dusk, and you can see animals sort of hiding in foliage better. You can see that contrast better, it seems. And this is why a lot of predators uh, don't have color vision. And, that, and that's, oh, well, obviously we're not predators that much. We have very forward-facing eyes. That's, that's a predator eyes. And we have these, these opposable big uh, shoulders that are big, big uh, 
big range of motion that like chimpanzees don't have. An average man will throw a baseball 60 miles an hour, just no training. Chimpanzee may be 20, right? And that's just due to the nature of our shoulders. We're throwing things, we're hunting things, we're throwing rocks, we're throwing spears, things like that. Um, but, you know, some people have sort of you know, like red, green, colorblind and things like that. That actually is, is, a, is a big advantage for hunting. And so there are advantages to having color vision, but there are, was also that selection pressure. Like, actually, it is a bit better for hunting to, to lose your color vision. So that actually did happen. We actually did see that. Um, as far as fruit in general, I mean, think about all the berries and fruits and things like that that we don't eat that will actually kill you. Right. You know, so this isn't this isn't uh, a a one to one. It's just like if it's a fruit, it's good for you. Well, it may want something to eat it. Right. But it doesn't necessarily want you to eat it. In fact, a lot of these fruits develop with uh, birds uh, for especially eating like the berries and things like that. They would eat that berry or whatever. And then they go off and they they they'd spread the seeds around. <clears throat> so. And there, there are tons of examples of this, you know, uh, like in, in the tropics, there's a bird called the cassowary bird, and it is a frugivore. It only eats fruit. And there are about 150 different varieties of fruit that it eats. Nothing else eats them, right? Because they are deadly poisonous, to, I, as far as I know, all other animals apart from the cassowary bird. <clears throat> because they had a bit of coevolution with the with these plants and that, and that bird where... <clears throat> Those seeds won't germinate, <clears throat> excuse me, will only germinate in the gut of a cassowary bird. So if you or I eat it, that, that seed won't germinate. So that won't turn into a plant. So that's not in the plant's adva uh, advantage, not to the plant's advantage. So it's defending it and said, no, we only want the cassowary bird to eat this. I mean, they don't know this, right? But it's just it's, that's how it's sort of evolved. But that's, that's the end result is that only the cassowary bird can eat this. So that's 150 fruits that will kill you. And we'll kill basically anything besides a cassowary bird. All these different berries and things like that. You know, if you do Boy Scouts or you do survival sort of training, or you've grown up uh, in in the woods and and in a in a, uh, a, a a tribe out in the country, living naturally, you know, it's known like, hey, don't eat these berries. Like red berries in general, we recognize as like those to stay the hell away. That's a warning. This thing's going to be poisonous. The sweeter fruits are better. So we, that is what is, that's thought to be why fructose is very sweet. So other carbohydrates are very mildly sweet. Like if you've ever had sort of like just, just glucose powder, put it on, it's mildly sweet. It's not like bang sugar, right? Like sucrose, uh, fructose is very sweet. It's much, much sweeter than glucose. And so the, the thought is evolutionarily on why that's very sweet and recognize that as this, this very sweet positive flavor is because the plants that have fructose aren't as poisonous. And so we recognize that as something safer to eat. And so if you're in that state where you're, you're trying to survive and you can't necessarily get your food and you're starving, you need to, okay, I need to eat something to survive. And you recognize that sweet taste. Those people would have survived more because they, they were able to eat something that gave them energy, let them survive and then get their, their normal food. So it was a stopgap. Uh, in that. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's no poisons in them. It just means that there's less and that you can survive on them. They're not acutely poisonous. They're going to kill you. All citrus have furanocoumarins, right? And these are defense chemicals that your body needs to, to break down. This is why when uh, taking certain medications, you're told not to eat grapefruit juice or eat grapefruit because the furanocoumarins in grapefruit 
get detoxified by certain enzymes in your liver, which also metabolize a lot of medications that we use. There's like statins and, and uh, different cardiac medications. And so if you're eating grapefruit, you're going to use up all those enzymes. And so you're not going to metabolize your medications properly. So you're going to get too little or too much. And you can get either no good or toxic toxicity from that. And, and there are other examples of that. Um, different phenocumarins can uh, be triggered by UV light and they ir uh, irreversibly bind to proteins and DNA, cause permanent DNA damage. There have been people that have gotten you know, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, second degree burns from just having, getting lime juice on their hands, like just squeezing lines out in the sun. They get horrible burns on their skin. So there, there definitely are defense chemicals in these, in these fruits. There's just less. And the fructose itself, the sugar itself is harmful. You know I mean? Yes, it, it gives a dopamine response. <clears throat> that's an addictive substance. And that's maybe a better benefit to the plant saying you're getting addicted to this. So you eat more of it. So you move its seeds more and that provides benefit to the plant. But you know, just because it gives you a dopamine response doesn't mean it's good for you. I mean, cocaine gives you a dopamine response. So does heroin. Does that mean that those <laughs> things are, are a good idea? You know, it's probably not actually. And so, you know, it can, it can provide, it can provide uh, nutrition and calories in, in times of extremis and you recognize, okay, this is more safe, uh, but it is addictive and it is harmful in and of itself. Sugar has been shown specifically fructose has been shown to metabolize in the liver into the same byproducts as alcohol. So you get the same damage to your liver and your body from fructose as you do alcohol. So you get fatty liver disease, cirrhosis, uh, peripheral insulin resistance, which is type 2 diabetes, and has even been implicated in things like heart disease, Alzheimer's, and cancer. So this is nasty stuff long term, right? <clears throat> so it can provide a benefit. It can provide a, a survival advantage, but it's not necessarily something that you want to eat every day. Well, this is something I'd really like to get more into because um, my latest crazy dietary experiment was more along the lines of a repeat sort of inspired pro-metabolic diet where people are talking about the, the benefits of having sugar in your diet, including sucrose, including things, you know, uh, even even low carb guys like Dave Asprey right now and uh, Dr. James Nicola Antonio, they're all like, oh, you know, orange juice, it's really good. It helps, you know clear out the um what's it called the endotoxin in your gut and you know the the fructose is is really good so a lot of the arguments for sugar uh in your diet um and this is really why i wanted to talk to you i wanted to talk about why this is actually horribly misguided and i'm actually killing myself doing this is <laughs> that uh sugar is pro-metabolic first and foremost right it, it helps promote mm -hmm. thyroid hormone output it is anti-stress in that uh you know consuming carbohydrates is directly correlated with lowering cortisol levels. And so if you're naturally in a stress state, this is one of the arguments against a ketogenic state is that um, the argument is that that's stress metabolism. So your body does not have adequate exogenous glucose or exogenous carbohydrate to fuel all the cells. And so you go into the stressful state of ketosis, right? And, and it's, it's, a, it's a stress metabolism response so that you don't want to be in the state of stress. Stress is what kills you. Stress is what's associated with chronic disease. Eat more carbohydrates, lower your stress levels, lower your cortisol levels. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, insulin is, uh, is a hormone that is probably responsible for that because it's the antagonist to 
cortisol is my understanding. Now, I actually don't know anything. I don't have a, a formal education in this. I'm a guy who listens to a lot of podcasts, reads a lot of peer-reviewed studies, and is obsessed with nutrition because I was really fat as a kid, and I wanted to figure out how to be healthy and eat properly, and I've been trying to figure it out for 10 years. I still don't know what the hell I'm talking about. So this is why I talk to people who are more intelligent than me. Um, so you know, some of the questions that I have are, are oriented around why is sugar actually really terrible for you in some of these experiments that I've had increasing my sugar intake i've I, you know i i was doing a, an experiment to see what what's the upper limit of calories that i can intake from uh you know clean foods where i'm avoiding polyunsaturated fats i'm not eating grains uh you know i'm not eating vegetables i'm not eating a lot of the the plant toxins that is still a, a part of my diet but then i'm also ingesting a lot of glucose and i was i i think i cranked my calories up to like 4200 calories a day and was dropping weight, uh, you know, just from like, you know, I'd work out an hour a day, the rest of the day, I'm kind of, you know, getting 10,000 steps and doing computer work. And I was, you know, I was just cranking my calories. It was like, how many calories of sugar do I have to eat of, of food on top of what I'm doing before I start gaining weight? And I think I got up to like 5,500 calories before I started putting on half a pound a week, which is insane to me, right? Because it's like, in my head, it's like, oh, you know, you crank your insulin levels up with sugar. It promotes fat storage. This should, you know, in theory, it should, I should be putting on fat. I should be gaining a bunch of weight. But here I am eating 5,500 calories, most of them from sucrose. Um, and I'm not, and I'm, I'm like steady, stable weight. The argument, I think, in the repeat community or the people who are pro-metabolic diet is, well, you're cranking your thyroid hormone because it was a gradual increase, there's a, a thermic adaptation to your metabolism and you're, in, you're cranking your metabolism up so you can eat so much more without affecting your weight. Now, this is all cool in theory. I had lots of energy. I was really focused. I was really happy all the time because I'm fucking high on sugar, right? But, uh, but then, you know, thinking about, okay, there are probably long-term health consequences to this. This is actually insane. I'm doing this as a dietary experiment because I'm curious. I always try everything once. Next thing I'm doing is I'm doing a uh, hundred days of carnivore, which is I'm kicking it off with a, a conversation with you. So um, tell me why I'm killing myself doing that and why the people in the repeat community, the guys who are listening to Paul Saladino mucking down sugar, why, like what are the damaging effects of things like fructose? You kind of alluded to it. They're associated with heart disease they're associated with cancers. What's physiologically happening as I'm cranking my thyroid hormone, as I'm lowering my cortisol, as I'm experiencing these perceived health benefits and feeling better with this intervention, what are the negative effects that I'm yeah. like basically long-term introducing to my body by doing this? Well, like you say, you get an increase in your insulin, right? That can cause a lot of metabolic issues and a lot of problems throughout your body. It doesn't just oppose uh, things like uh, cortisol. It opposes a lot of things. It actually blocks uh, growth hormone secretion as well as growth hormone action, right? So this is a major hormone that we use in health and longevity and things like that. It's like longevity clinics, they would pr provide or prescribe uh, growth hormone and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, getting adequate sleep and not eating carbs before bed, all these sorts of things are, are things to help have has shown a lot of clinical benefits and a lot of that has to do with insulin opposing growth hormone um it's you know it is not it's not clear to me that that is a stressed state metabolically because that metabolic state as i when i took biochemistry in in college 
we were taught there's a, this is a fed state and this is a fasting state and this is entirely different metabolism as you, as you go into these two different states. And the problem with that is that when you eat anything except carbohydrates, you're also in a so-called fasting state. This is why when they do studies with ketogenic diet, because that was quite taboo for a long time, they called it a fasting mimicking diet, right? As well as it mimics fasting. And we have all these studies that show that fasting is very, very good for you. And this mimics fasting. What does a fasting mimicking diet confer the same benefits? They found actually they did. In fact, a lot of them showed more benefit than just fasting alone. Um, I think that that is our primary metabolic state. I think that's the primary metabolic state of most animals in the wild. And that's where we get most of our, our heavy machinery comes to bear. Um, so if you look at animals in the wild and they have studies, even like going back to 1981, the idea was if you need to eat carbs in order to burn carbs. And they said, well, you know, wolves don't carbo load before they chase caribou for 10 hours. So do they have blood sugar? Do they have glycogen? They found out, yes, they do. And it's rock solid. It doesn't change. They're, they're constantly replenishing their blood sugar and their glycogen. And so they're able to go, 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 go. So they never hit the wall that, you know, endurance athletes would say they carbo low, but then they hit the wall and they feel awful and they have to push and push and push until they break through the wall. Uh, most people don't. Most people just stop. But people that are able to push it, push themselves and break through the wall, they get their second win, their runner's high, and they feel amazing. They can go forever. That's kicking you over, forcing you into that metabolism where you can now you can now mobilize your fat stores and you can make blood sugar, glycogen and ketones. So I don't think that's a fasting state. I think that's our primary metabolic state. That's, that's a state where things work better overall. The downside to eating a lot of glucose long-term is, is many fold, but a major fundamental one is just the glucose itself. High glucose levels actually harm your body. So glucose physically fuses to other molecules and damages them irreparably. And it's called glycation. And so there's a non-enzymatic uh, binding of these two molecules. So these carbohydrate molecules, and glucose does this, fructose does this, all the carbohydrates do it. And, and in fact, fructose does this more than glucose does. So these fuse to other molecules and it damages them. And this is, this is what kills diabetics. It's just chronically high blood sugar that is just damaging them and, and, and just breaking them down from the inside out. This is, um, you know, this can damage your LDL cholesterol. This is what uh, is, is most likely involved in disease, uh, disease processes like atherosclerosis because you damage the Apple B100 receptor on LDL cholesterol. Now the liver can't recognize it, can't take it up. The only thing that recognizes it are your macrophages and the scavenger receptors and they, they, soup these things up. They get those big foam cells that people talk about when you have all this LDL, your body makes these foam cells, and then those can get stuck in the, in the wall of the artery wall. That's never been really proven one way or the other, but that's the idea. And, but where do those foam cells come from? They come from eating up those damaged LDL cholesterol. If you don't have a damaged LDL cholesterol, you have no foam cells. So that stops that right in its tracks. So just having higher blood sugar is damaging to your body. And this is why your body responds by rapidly increasing or greatly increasing your insulin levels, because it's like, this is hazmat, this is damage control. We need to get this the hell out of there. But now you have high insulin and that's causing problems as well. So that's 
opposing uh, growth hormone. People that are in the gym, they're trying to work out, they're trying to be athletes, and they're just eating carbs, 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 carbs. You are severely curtailing your growth hormone production and utilization, right? So that's literally the opposite of what you'd want to do. Um, and so, you know, you can you can mitigate that by you know taking taking that exogenously. But if you want to do this naturally and you want to optimize your body's health and performance and hormones, then you would want to stay away from that. It also uh, Insulin is also involved in the contractility and compli uh, compliance of your arteries. And so when you have insulin resistance and you start, you, your receptors are just like, we're getting too much signal here. We're shutting down the receptors. We're not listening to you anymore. All of a sudden, it can't listen to that insulin. It just stays rigid and, and, and small. It doesn't dilate out, uh, which it normally would do. And, uh, and so it stays lower volume and your blood pressure goes up. So a lot of people are finding that just by going on a ketogenic diet, their, their blood pressure issues go away. They come off their medications. Also with diabetes, diabetes has been clinically proven to be reversible on a ketogenic diet, you know, and that, and that's with, with you know, um, can, can I pause us there for a second? No, Cause this is, this is an interesting, uh, sort of debate that I've heard amongst a few different people. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, you know, I'm the furthest thing in the world from a vegan now. Um, but there are some interesting points that uh, talking points that certain vegan doctors bring up mm -hmm. about the cause of uh, insulin resistance, one of them mm -hmm. being intracellular leukemia, which is when there's fat within a cell that blocks the action of um, that blocks the action of insulin being received, essentially. And so, you know, when you, when you talk about it, their, their argument is that, well, okay, you can go on a low carbohydrate diet, but you're not necessarily solving the problem. What you're doing essentially is you're lowering your blood sugar levels because you're not consuming any exogenous carbohydrate, but the root cause of your insulin resistance, which is this intracellular leukemia is still present. And so a lot of people who, uh, you know, have a glucose an oral glucose tolerance test when they're on a low carbohydrate diet, they have these negative results. I saw a bit about uh, explaining that with your interview with Ben Bickman, which was phenomenal, by the way, that's like my favorite interview that I've ever watched on YouTube. Um, but this is, this is an interesting thing where it's like, well, does fat intake affect your ability to metabolize glucose? Does fat intake mm -hmm. uh, affect your insulin sensitivity as a whole? And, you know, could fat interfere with your um, metabolism of glucose and, and be a, a root cause for some of this insulin resistance? Yeah. So, I, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's, it's, it's a nuanced answer because, the th I mean, the thing is, biochemistry is very complicated. You know, like it's, it, is, it is, you know, it's a 400 level class and it's an entire year and uh, most people don't take it. And uh, even in medical school, uh, around the world, they don't do undergrad first. And so a lot of doctors have no clue when it comes to biochemistry because they, they don't have, they don't go through the, the rigors of pre-med requirements that we do in America. So they don't take OCHEM, inorganic chem, biochem, and all these sorts of things to that extent, you know, taking years, you know, three full years of very, very, uh, uh, complex chemistry. They don't get that. They get about a week and they're like, Oh yeah, look at this sort of stuff. Oh, I know biochemistry. I'm a doctor. You know, they don't know a thing. Um, so what, what that's, what's that's describing is called, it's called the Randall cycle. And that was, that was discovered, I think in the seventies. And so there's this, uh, it, it appears to be that there's this sort of competition between, uh, carbohydrates and fat as a fuel substrate in your cells. And it, it, it seems as described by the Randall cycle, basically, if you have a, a big influx of carbohydrates, 
that your your cells and your mitochondria will, will be running on those and it'll basically get overloaded with everything else coming in the carbs and the and the fats and things like that and so it makes it it seals it off it says okay you're not coming in here we're, we're just sort of backing this off we have enough energy go away and so now you have this excess energy in your in your blood cells and then it has to go somewhere else and get stored as fat or something like that and so if you're eating a lot of fat first that can that'll sensitize it to fat and you'll block off the glucose but if you're just eating glucose um, that will block off the fat and block off the rest of the glucose as well just to not overload your cells that's the randall cycle Um, if people want a more uh, cogent explanation of that uh, go to to bart k professor bart k he's he's a professor of um, uh, you know of in at the university level in New Zealand for I think 26 years, something like that is three research degrees and, you know, has, has been on the peer review committee for different uh, journals and things like that. So he's very, very well versed in all of these things. And he has videos on that. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, not, not everybody actually even agrees that your body can even really run on a lot of carbohydrates. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Kiltz thinks that we're really always running on, on fats and it just sort of looks like we're running on carbs sometimes, uh, for other reasons. But as far as, as insulin resistance goes, that's, uh, that's garbage. You know, insulin is a response to carbohydrates. It's not, it's not a response to fat. It's just not. And so, you know, when you eat fat, you know, you look at the glycemic index, you know, you're eating fat. This doesn't, doesn't raise your insulin. You know, it just doesn't, you know, so you're not getting a response from that. So they're saying that, well, you eat fat and then that, that blocks it off, but you have, you have no, uh, you know, insulin sort of uh, effects at that point. So the, the studies that looked at, the studies that looked at insulin resistance, so-called insulin resistance, how do we measure insulin resistance? We measure that by doing a glucose tolerance test. You basically drink a sugary drink. You know, like it's just a big you know, can of soda and then you check your your blood sugar and your body can respond to this and keep you down in sort of more normal range and have a bit of a spike. But then that comes down pretty quickly and doesn't go too high. Then that means, oh, you're insulin sensitive and you're doing really well. Well, you know, it, it's more complicated than that. Um, so when you go when you're in ketosis for a long time, as you know, we discussed with with uh, Professor Bickman. Uh, who's a you know biochemistry professor at BYU, and he's been studying insulin and its effects on the bodies for over 15 years. Um, when you when you're in a ketogenic diet, you're not eating carbohydrates, so your body has very low insulin, right? And what happens physiologically when you're eating a lot of carbohydrates is your body pre-makes insulin, and so it has it there ready to go, sort of as a defensive mechanism. Like, okay, we don't trust this guy, you know, so we gotta we have to get ready because this. Blood sugar is going to go up. That's going to damage us. We need to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And so it preloads your, your beta islet cells with insulin so they can release very quickly. When you don't do that, your body doesn't pre-make the insulin because it doesn't need to. Your body's very, very efficient. It's not going to spend the energy and resources making some sort of chemical just, just because, right? It, it responds to your environment. Just like, you know, you're not just going to just start just building up and just muscles. You're just going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. If you're sitting on the couch doing nothing, you have to stimulate those muscles to grow. You have to stimulate and, and encourage your body to, you know, secure resources and materials to that area to build that, that part of your body up. It's not going to do it just on its own. So when you're, in ketosis for a long time or just not eating carbs for a long time you're not always in ketosis you'll not need to do that and so you do a glucose tolerance test and lo and behold your glucose goes up and it takes a long time to come down well that's not because you're insulin resistant 
is because you don't have the insulin pre-made to shoot out. And when you do start making it, it comes out and it gets that down. After a couple days of, of eating carbohydrates again, your body starts pre-making the insulin because it's like, okay, we're back to this again. And so then you do a glucose tolerance test as a much better result because in fact, we're much more insulin sensitive at the time, right? So what you need to do is you need to check your blood sugar and check your insulin levels, right? Because your insulin levels are going to be quite low. And that's why your blood sugar will, will have been high. So you can't be insulin resistant if you're not, if you had high insulin and you're not getting much of an insulin effect, that's insulin resistant. But if you are having high blood sugar, which is a downstream effect, maybe of uh, not having appropriate amounts of insulin or sensitivity to insulin, then, you know, then you check the insulin levels, right? Because wait, what about a type one diabetic? Are they insulin resistant? No, they just don't have insulin in the first place. That's the response mm. that you're getting. You're just, you don't have an adequate amount of insulin at the time to get the effect that you want, but your body will pre will start making it later and you'll actually be more insulin sensitive. That's what, uh, that's what we found. And you, you also, you make blood sugar. This whole idea of, you know, we need to take in carbohydrates for all these bio biological, physiological processes is a bit strange because if you take biochemistry, you'll see we make blood sugar, we make glycogen to exacting degrees. So you actually have normal blood sugar levels and you have ketones and you have uh, glycogen. So you actually, you don't need any. And this is, this has been recognized by many uh, international medical bodies. They just like, you know, the amount of glucose that you need throughout your lifetime is zero grams. You know, there are people, entire civilizations that do not eat any carbohydrates throughout their entire existence, generation after generation after generation. I mean, again, think of the ice ages. Where were the carbs? Where was the fruit and honey at that time? We didn't have it. You know, we didn't have access to it. When people were crossing, you know, the land bridge from Asia to, to Alaska, where was the fruit there? You know, it was, mm. it was just ice. That was it. You're not growing anything. You're not getting any honey. And so you can only do that a generation or two before you start seeing very serious problems, especially if you're getting a problem with your thyroid. If hypothyroidism can kill you, first of all, second of all, even in, 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 in uh, sub uh, clinical levels, it's or subclinical deficiencies, it's, it's still going to cause problems. People are pretty miserable when they don't have enough thyroid uh, hormone going around. But also, so if you're not eating carbohydrates and that's going to tank your thyroid and you're going to become hypothyroid, that's going to mess you up. And it's going to be very difficult to live during an ice age because, you know, you're, you're not eking out an existence during an ice age. You're either thriving or you're dead. Like that, there's no two options. There's no other options in, in an ice age, right? I mean, it's just like you, it is such harsh environments that you either have to be killing it or you're gone, right? Or it's killing you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so if you are hypothyroid, you're probably not going to be able to survive. But also your kids are going to be pretty screwed because congenital hypothyroidism, when a mother has low thyroid during pregnancy, it actually causes it's called a teratogenic uh, effect. So it, it, it significantly damages the development of the fetus. So that baby will have what's called cretinism. That's, that's congenital hypothyroidism. That's where that insult comes like, are you cretin? Like, this, is, this is where it yeah. comes from. And so uh, they're short stature. They're very short. They have very specific facial deformities and they're severely intellectually delayed. 
And so that's not really a recipe for survival in a harsh climate and environment. And so that lasts about one generation, right? And then you have a knock-on effect, maybe just slightly affected, and then the next generation more and more and more. That's eventually going to die out and you're not going to thrive. And But we did thrive. And our ancestors, you look at the fossil record during these times when they were hunting mammoths, a lot of these people were like, on average, adult male height was like 6'2". Some areas are six foot four. Average, right? I'm six three, so I would be average for that time period. Right now, the average uh, height in America for an adult male is five foot eight, right? So the average height of a population really denotes the average health of a population, and we were healthier. Well, this, this is fascinating too. I was I was talking to someone recently about looking at different cultures and the the sort of like national foods that they tended to eat. And so we looked at uh, cultures like Mexico, for example, that's a lot of rice, beans, corn, uh, versus you know a lot of Native African populations that are you know and and looking at the physiological differences between them. Um, you know, I was just I just spent a month in Mexico. And most of them were five foot four and under is kind of what I noticed. Like there were many, many more short, you know, like portly yeah. people versus, um, you know, any native African person that I've ever met has been like a foot taller than me and very <laughs> lean and you know, almost had like, you know, this, this beautiful build like mm. that just, you yeah. know, no matter, it almost seemed like no matter what they ate, it was like, they always maintained this incredible physique mm. almost like genetically. Right. And so, just looking at the the sort of ancestral or the cultural diet over multiple generations and how that might genetically impact, you know, when you're talking about this sort of um, multi-generational impact that nutrition has on people, right? Like I have, uh, I have an Italian background, a lot of grains, a lot of wheat, a lot of, uh, you know, and I, I am one of those five foot eight guys that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> didn't, didn't sprout up to, to over six feet tall, but um but, you know, realizing that like, okay, you know, nutrition obviously has a massive impact. You look at, um, this was a, a big thing where it was like when, uh, I used to coach people in CrossFit, we would always look at these Icelandic girls that would be, you know, like mucking back all this fish and, and like all this meat and all these, you know, fermented cheeses and all this, you know, that that's their cultural and they're so hardy and they're so freaking strong and they're so athletic and it's like, mm-hmm. with like, well, how is this particular place producing so many high-level CrossFit athletes? And I think, you know, it's the, the generational nutrition that really produces it ultimately. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think, I think you're exactly right. There was, a, there was an experiment with cats uh, called Pottinger's Cats. Very interesting. People can look up. Mm. And he found that just by uh, cooking meat, uh, cats weren't as healthy. As, as eating raw meat. They're much healthier when they were eating raw meat. And, and so he, he, he tested this and he went, several generations down, the, the raw meat cats just stayed very, very healthy, large, uh, large brains uh, for a cat. <laughs> Not the cats have large brains, but for a cat, you know, and, uh, and, and fully developed zygomatic arch, the cheekbones, you know, big high cheekbones and the, the cooked meat. So it's not even like grains and garbage that we feed them now mm. on cat food. It's, it's just, it's just the, uh, just cooking the meat. They were getting successively smaller. Their body size were getting smaller and smaller. Their brain sizes were getting smaller and smaller. And their their cheekbones were getting less developed. Their teeth were getting underdeveloped. Their jaws were getting worse. And we noticed this actually in humans after the uh, uh, agricultural revolution. Our brain started going smaller, 11% smaller now than they were before the agricultural revolution. Our jaws got smaller. Our teeth got crooked. We weren't getting our 
uh, wisdom teeth then before the agricultural revolution, every single fossil record that you'll find is like, that's actually how they can tell if something's before or after the agricultural revolution. They can look at that and be like, yep, this guy was just eating meat. And uh, they don't get the cavities and things like that, that, that we would get now. So the cat with the cats, they just went generation after generation. They were getting smaller, weaker, more brittle bones. The, the mineral mineralization of the bones were getting worse and worse and worse to the point that by the third generation, it was only 3% mineralization from 14%. And, uh, and they were just getting all these breaks and fractures because their bones were weaker. Mm. And it was, right. it was actually sounded quite sad. And then after that, they couldn't actually make a next generation. They either weren't interested in sex at all. Uh, they're having stillbirths. Uh, um, and, uh, so they couldn't act, they had no live births in the, in the fourth generation of cooked meat. And then they switched them back to, to raw meat. Cats got a lot healthier for what they were, because obviously you can't redo your, your development, right? Like neither of us can, we're not going to grow another six inches and then be like, you know, just massive Icelandic, you know, demigods, like we should have been, you know, <laughs> but you know, we can optimize where we're at now. And that's what they did with the cats. And they found that, you know, their kids started getting better and better and better, but it actually wasn't just the next generation. They went back to full health. It took four generations before they got mm. to be as healthy, uh, physically, uh, and activity levels, uh, uh, as the ones that were just eating raw meat the whole time. So th this does have an, a knock on effect. This does have epigenetic changes and effects that will last a lifetime. And, successive lifetimes as well. And so I think that that's a major thing. Um, there are, there are a lot of other, uh, pieces of, of, uh, you know, records from native Americans and native Americans were like pushing seven feet tall. There's a, there's a famous meeting between then president Thomas Jefferson and some of these native Americans that came over from sort of the great lakes area, I think great lakes. And, uh, and Jefferson was like six foot two, you know, like six, three, something like that. He's one of the taller presidents, certainly one of the taller people around at the time. And these guys came in, he said that they were giants. He's like, these guys were giants. <laughs> They're just these huge, huge people. And so you see that the native Australians as well. I was reading an account of, you know, there's pretty horrible history here with, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the European powers and things like that and having these wars and eradicating people. And there was this battle. Um, there was a, you know, sort of a site of one of these, these battles and they were just picking through the bones. They found the bones of, of these aboriginals. They found the forearms, just, just the forearm bones here, here were longer than some of the Europeans full arm, right? Big dudes, you know? Wow. Um, now you're not really seeing that as much, right? Because they're not eating what they're supposed to eat. So there, there's a lot of that. There's actually, you know, when you look at human nutrition, most of the studies are garbage because they're, they're epidemiological <laughs> sort of survey, yeah. you know, asking you sort of your, what you remember eating the last year and how you're feeling, all these sorts of things. They can be done well, but it's very difficult. You have to, you have to work really hard at, at designing a good study. And most of these were purposefully designed crappy. There was a University of Washington in Seattle just published a, a literature review excoriating all the studies talking about how red meat causes disease and causes cancer in particular. And they said that all these things are extremely very, very, very weak and that they are lazy science and that these are just, these are just very poorly designed studies. They do not show what people are saying that they show. Um, and so that's a lot of these things, but there are some that, 
that do a bit better. And in fact, in animal nutrition, you can actually run randomized controlled experiments with genetically similar, similar populations and controlling everything except one variable. And you can actually look at so So animal nutrition is actually extremely uh, uh, scientifically based and has a very good application of these scientific principles. Human nutrition, not so much. But there was a there was a study that was very interesting. It was looking at two populations in Africa, uh, looking at the Maasai, which are basically just carnivores. They just eat uh, milk, actually very high fat milk. We our milk is about four percent. There's eight percent raw, obviously, and uh, drinking like blood of their cattle and meat. So that's all they eat, really. You know, unless they're starving or using something medicinally. But really, that that's just all they eat. And then they contrasted that with a, a tribe that was right next to them, the Akikiyu, I think it's pronounced. And that that was very interesting because this was this was population was right next to them. So it was actually intermarriage between the groups. So there was genetic similarity between the groups. And they were very plant-based. They were they're vegetarian. They were and, and this is back in 1931, right? So this is like a vet, you know, a vegan's dream, right? It's just whole foods, there's pesticides. I've never seen that that place before. And so this is just the, these raw, natural, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables and things like that. So perfect, exactly what they, they promote. Right. And they contrasted these two populations and they found that the Maasai were on average five inches taller and mm. genetically similar population. Remember, because they intermarry, right. But they were on average five inches taller they had far less health issues. The the, the had had a ton of different health issues and problems, poor wound healing, poor recovery from uh, from uh, illness and infection and things like that. They're also looking at this because, you know, they had to lock people up. And so they had the prison population. So, okay, what's the best thing to feed people uh, in prison? You know, and they found that when they switched Akikiyu into a meat-based diet, they actually improved in all of these factors. Obviously, they didn't grow another five inches, but they but they <laughs> improved uh, their health uh, outcome markers and all the different ways that they studied. Um, they found that they were deficient in a lot of vitamins and minerals and that just supplementing those vitamins and minerals weren't enough to get the health outcomes. They needed to eat meat. So that was actually a really, really good study because you're looking at a lot of different people. You're looking at comparable genetic populations. One's eating whole food meat-based diet, others eating whole food plant-based diet. That study's never been done again, right? You know, so whenever you say, whenever you have these studies that say like, well, eating more vegetables and fruit, fruit and vegetables, that that gives an advantage. It's always compared to what, you know? Is it anyone who right. studies economics is like compared to what? That is the only thing that matters. So they are comparing that to standard diet. They're not comparing that to a whole food meat-based diet. Most diets around the world are plant-based. They're just processed, highly processed plant plant products like carb, refined carbohydrates and sugars. And so going to a whole meat diet or a whole, or a whole vegetarian diet, whole food diet in general, you're just, you're just going to get a benefit just from getting away from that crap, right? Mm. And so it's always compared to what? None of these studies have compared to whole food meat-based diet and and you know that's something that we need to do you know and and this this study that was published in the journal of the american medical association one of the top journals in the world you know that actually looked at that question you know anytime you say it's like oh well we have this meta-analysis and all these things showing that you know uh, vegetables do this that and the other compared to what if you're not comparing it to a whole food meat-based diet then you're comparing apples to oranges and it's it's completely irrelevant 
I, I have a, I'm going to pivot a little bit because I, I have a bit of a theory in terms of why some of the carnivore community has started eating honey and fruit. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, it, there's a pattern that I've noticed um, specifically, you know, Paul Saladino was one of these guys, but I think one of the first people that I saw talking about it was this guy, carnivore Aurelius, who's like mm-hmm. this faceless anonymous, you know, meat influencer account who was pushing liver really hard. And Paul mm-hmm. Saladino went on Joe Rogan, started mucking back raw liver. And something I noticed is all these guys that really push a lot of organ meat consumption started to have issues with uh, mineral balance. And they started to have basically health issues that that pushed them into thinking that they needed carbohydrates. So I think their their move towards more carbohydrate consumption, like fruit and honey, an example, was was reactive to a health consequence of eating excess organ meats. I actually don't think organ meats are that healthy for us because of hypervitaminosis and an imbalance of, of particular minerals like copper. And, um, you know, I, I, like, so that's my personal take. I've, you know, even when I've heard some of your other interviews, you talk about the sort of ratio of how much organ meat you would have versus how much muscle meat you would have. I know that your diet is just muscle meat and fat. I'm pretty sure. Right. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do, you do you eat things like butter, for example? Yeah, yeah, I'll have butter. Like, like if if something's too lean, especially like in Australia, they've mm. they've just really latched on to the whole fat is bad sort of thing. And if you're going to do right. that, then then I agree. You know, cut out the fat. And so they've actually bred their cattle to be more lean. And then when they go to like the the abattoirs and things like that, they just strip off as much fat as possible. It's it's actually really bothers me. And so yeah. when I came here, I had to start. I had to start upping the fat. So even getting like a ribeye. I mean, this thing's just. It's not even a ribeye. They call it a scotch fillet. It's um, because it's not it's not a ribeye. They, they're just stripping off all the fat around it. And uh, sometimes they even like take the cap off. I'm like, okay, that's just a sirloin. You know I mean? Like that's just like get out of there. And so I find that, you know, with that little amount of fat that I, w- I need a bit more or I want a bit more. And so I melt butter into it, which tastes delicious. You know? <laughs> and so uh, that's, uh, that's what I do as well. Yeah. So I will use a bit of butter. Uh, some people have a problem with dairy. I don't. And so. Just use a bit of butter. So in terms of the organ meat consumption thing, do you think it could cause problems if people are eating it on a regular basis or like even more than like, mm-hmm. I, I think if you're eating it more than once a week in terms of just like eating just a liver as a meal, for example, you're probably going to run into some issues. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right on that. It's um, it, you know, a lot of populations don't even eat the organs at all. Like in the, you know, the Inuits, they don't eat any of the organs. They feed all of that to their dogs. There's a famous, interview with uh, Wilhelmer uh, Stefansson, who was a, a, a Harvard professor and ethnologist and an explorer, polar explorer. And he went up and, and you know discovered whole bunches of areas of northern Canada going up towards the North Pole. And he lived with the Inuit for years and years and years. And, you know, at one point, it originally started when he wasn't able to get picked up when he was supposed to. And like, you miss one shot, you're, you're there for six months before they can get you again. And, um, and so he had to live with the Inuit and he learned their language, lived with them. He just ate meat and fish. And he said, I've never been healthier in my life. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so that's what he started doing more and more. He wrote a book called The Fat of the Land. And he did an interview, uh, you know, back in black and white. I, I don't know exactly when it was, but they were talking about like, well, what about organ meat? Don't you need the organ meats for uh, nutrients? I mean, this is this has been that old. And he's like, nope, that's that's a myth. You don't need the organ meat. You just need you know meat with the fat. The fat's important. That gives you complete nutrition. You know, we would never eat the organs. We would we would give those to the dogs. Uh, there are other populations that do eat the organs, and that and that's fine. I don't think there's any anything wrong with that 
in a hunting society or you as a hunter. But, you know, as you sort of mentioned, you, you can get when you're just buying the stuff from the store, you can get out of proportion very quickly, right? So you take down a buffalo that has enough meat on it to feed an individual for about two years, right? There's a lot of meat on that on that cow, right? And it has one liver, right? So you have one liver. It's a big liver, but it's one of them. You have one liver for the next two years, basically, if you can store it. And so that's not really something that you'd see. You wouldn't be having just a, uh, you know, chunk of liver every morning, every day. And so I think you can get out of proportion with it. And, you know, the argument for eating organs is that they're very nutrient dense. And that's true. That's also the problem because they can be more dense than you want. And so if you're eating them predominantly, you can get hypervitaminosis. Like you're saying, you get a buildup of these vitamins and these minerals to the extent that they can cause problems because too much vitamins are as bad as too little vitamins, right? So, uh, so, mm-hmm. Um, that, that can cause problems. We do know also that vitamin A, hypervitaminosis A blocks the production or action of, uh, thyroid stimulating hormone. So, Mm. you know, if you're eating a ton of organ meat and your vitamin A maybe isn't even in toxic levels, but it's just higher than your body necessarily wants it. You are already started going to start taking the rails off. My thyroid's fine. I don't have any problems with this. I've been doing this for years and years and years and have not had the problem. How many years, by the way? I started 23 years ago. And so, but then I did it sort of broken up. So I did it five years, pretty full on because I, I just learned how toxic plants were. And now you just don't want to eat them. So I'm like, okay, I'm not eating any of these things. I just defaulted into a carnivore diet where I was just eating meat. And I felt great. And every couple of months I, I thought to myself, I was like, do I, am I missing some vitamins here? Do I need to eat a banana or something? And and I thought to myself, I was like, well, you know, I feel good. And my gums aren't bleeding. So I'm just going to ride this out. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> and, uh, and I felt great. And then I sort of slipped off it when I was living in England. And I um, and uh, just didn't have the same access to meat. Some of it was breaded. And I was like, oh, does it make that big of a difference? You know, dose makes the poison, all that sort of stuff. And I convinced myself that it probably wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, it was a big deal. Actually, I did notice it affect me. And I, thinking back, years later, I didn't realize what it was. I was like, oh, am I not working out as hard? Am I not pushing myself? I'm just getting older. Mm. You know, I was 25 at the time. I was just, am I over it? I'm just dying now. Mm. Um, that's what I thought. And looking back now, I was like, no, that's actually when I started incorporating these things again. The biggest thing that it did was it, it got me out of the mindset of I'm not eating any plants whatsoever at all, you know? And then it was just like, ah, a little bit's not not that big of a deal. And then people, oh, you have to eat this. You have to have this. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll add some mushrooms in. I guess I'll add some spinach in. And it just was just a slowly, slowly sort of adding these things. But I was always very meat-based. I always just predominantly ate meat. Um, But I started including these things back in. And then five years ago, maybe six years ago now, I rediscovered this and be like, no, by a lot, no, humans actually are carnivores. That's the kind of animal we are. And that's what I was doing. And I've never felt better in my life during that five-year period in my early 20s. Just felt absolutely mm. incredible. And I was just like, that was it. That's why. Because I, w- I was living as a carnivore. I was eating as a carnivore, which is what we are biologically. I was like, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to get rid of these damn plants. I knew they were trying to kill me. Just get rid of them. And, um, and that was it. And I just started feeling amazing. And, uh, and that, that's the point where I really started digging into the research and the literature to say, okay, what do we know? What can we prove? So, you know, this is one of the 
motivations that I have to kind of start exploring a carnivorous diet. One of the huge changes in my own life, I'm 32 now. I have a history of powerlifting and CrossFit and, and a lot of athletic competition, mm-hmm. football, rugby, like you, not at the professional mm-hmm. level, but like all, you know, those, those were the sports that I was, you know, really into, really competitive, really driven to test the levels of my performance. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really changed it, like everything in terms of my energy levels, how I feel in my body, everything was, orienting my training around evolutionary biomechanics and having these yeah. functional training approaches that optimize for locomotion for the fact that the shoulder, for example, is oriented to throw like, like you alluded to earlier. It's like we evolved for throwing and basically we're locomotive creatures that orient around standing, walking, running, throwing So orienting my training around these evolutionary biomechanics. It changed everything in terms of how I feel in my body. I'm like, okay, if I'm, if I'm honoring my evolutionary biomechanics, and there is an evolutionary biology of how we should eat, then won't I feel even more fucking awesome? Won't I, won't I perform even better then? You know, I'll mm-hmm. sprint faster. Won't I have more energy? And this has always been my, my quest. You know, like I lost 100 pounds from when I was 15 years old, you know, just changing my diet, very meat-based, you know, very ketogenic diet doing that. So I lost close to 100 pounds on a ketogenic diet. Nice. And, um, and I've explored every, every possible dietary approach except for carnivore, right? So this is the, the, the one reluctance that I've had has been because I have this athletic background is like, okay, but always use carbohydrates as a performance enhancer as mm. a, as a, you know, with the background in, in CrossFit and in sprinting, all these glycolytic training things. Now, the first carnivore that I ever interviewed on this podcast was Dr. Sean Baker, who also performs like a fucking animal in his fifties, mm-hmm. right? And hearing stories about you putting on 25 pounds of muscle, and just, you know, eating like two kilograms of steak a day and like having seemingly unlimited energy as a carnivore. This is like, it, it made my brain short circuit because I'm like, that mm-hmm. this doesn't compute with everything that I know. Um, can you give a little bit of insight in terms of the physiology of why you think you had such a positive athletic response to a carnivorous diet specifically? Yeah. You know, that, that reminds me of a, of a quote from Mark Twain. That it's not what you don't know that you know you don't know that's a problem. It's it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That's the problem, and so that's that's the thing. It's like, but but you know, we know that you need carbohydrates. It's like, okay, do we? That's the definition of outside the box thinking. You know, say so you need to think outside the box. The box is all the you know contained limits of human knowledge. It's like, well, this is what it is. This is what we know, and that's it. It doesn't go outside of this. I mean, like, so if you ask a question, okay, well, what if it does? You know, you start opening up a lot of things. And, and of course, we don't have everything right. We don't know everything. No one does. No one ever will. And so it's, it's, you, it's a constant exploration for information and knowledge. And, and so that's uh, an important thing to do. So as far as, as energy levels are concerned, you know, Professor Tim Noakes um, from South Africa, this is one of the, the top sports medicine doctors and exercise physiologists, uh, you know, scientists in the world. And for decades and decades and decades, he was a guy saying, no, you need carbohydrates. You have to eat carbs to burn carbs and all that sort of stuff. And he has said, you know, years ago now, I don't know, a decade or more ago, it's like, I was completely wrong. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I feel like I've been lying to people for 30 years. Um, actually, he says that he's like, I've been lying to people for 30. Of course, he wasn't lying. He thought that that was true. Uh, but now he feels it like that's completely wrong. And in fact, now he's doing uh, exercise physiology experiments 
to, to see exactly what's going on and comparing these things to, to a ketogenic style. Like I said, I think that our primary metabolic state is, is not the so-called fed state being disrupted by insulin. I think that's, that's a, a, a pathological state where your body's trying to protect you from hyperglycemia. And that disrupts a lot of biomechanics in your body. And it, you know, as you, as you sort of mentioned earlier, you have your insulin up. This puts you into a fat storage metabolism as a fat to a fat burning metabolism. Now, if you're working out and you're exercising and you're using those carbs, then you know, you're not going to be storing as, as much of this stuff, but you will, you will store a lot of it or you can anyway. And so, and especially people that aren't as, as active and they're not, they're not slowly incrementally lifting this up and saying, okay, your metabolism's going up and your usage is going up and that's great. If they're just, sort of just eating what they want to eat, they, they can run into trouble, especially because insulin blocks leptin, which is a satiety signal secreted from our horm from our uh, adipose tissue, also from our stretch receptors in our stomach, tells your brain, hey, we're satisfied. We don't need to eat anymore. Insulin blocks that. Fructose also blocks that independently and upregulates ghrelin, which is the hormone secreted from your stomach saying, hey, we're empty. We need to, you need to put food in me. And so all of those in combination make you overeat, make you think you're starving when you're actually not because your brain doesn't see any of the leptin. So it thinks you have zero energy reserves and your blood sugar is dropping because your insulin's up and you can't mobilize blood sugar, glycogen, ketones because your insulin's up. And so your brain panics and says, if you don't eat now, you will die. And this is why three times a day people lose their minds because they're not eating. I have to eat, I have to eat. And they get hangry. And you know, we, they, you know, we make all these funny terms and jokes about it, but people are uh, quite a lot of distress, just freaking out that they, they can't eat. That goes away. That goes away when you stop eating carbohydrates. And, um, so there's benefits of that as well. Your body is perfectly in tuned with your hunger signals and you don't end up overeating as well. So your body works a lot better when you're not eating carbohydrates. You're able to mobilize your fat stores. You're able to make ketones and glucose and glycogen. So your mother, your muscles run on glycogen and, and glucose. That's true. You make all of it that you need. We know that from these uh, studies in wolves as far back as 1981, we knew this, that if you don't eat carbs, you will keep maintaining your blood sugar, liver glycogen, muscle glycogen. It doesn't go down. Your body constantly replenishing this stuff. And that was when they were at rest. That was when they were chasing. That was after a hunt. That was after a meal. Like everything was just bang was right here. And we've been using a ketogenic diet for a hundred years to treat diabetics because that was the only thing that we knew to, to help these people and save their life and prolong their life in type one. So as far as uh, exercise goes, if you're not eating carbohydrates, you're making all the carbohydrates you need and you're tuned into your fat stores. So you can just go forever because when you're eating carbohydrates and your insulin's up, you have enough energy to work at a high level for a couple hours usually, you know, if you carbo load mm -hmm. and things like that. And this is why people carbo load and they go run a marathon. But during that marathon, they, they crash out and they feel horrible and they have to push themselves and push themselves and try to force themselves through the wall. And that's getting you into this, this metabolic state that uh, you can then perpetually go into. So why not start just, in that? Just, 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 a, just, a, just quickly, like the wall is switching from a glucose metabolism to the keto metabolism where you're I think using so. your yeah. fat stores. Okay. Yeah, so I think so. I think what that is, so, so you know, high performance athletes, you know, that that really push themselves, they'll go to the point they hit the wall and they just crash out, and that's when you're running out of your glycogen and you can't and you can't mobilize any energy stores from your fat cells because insulin stays up for about 24 hours, and so you know that you're going to run out 
and you're going to hit the wall and you're going to feel like garbage. Most people stop there. There are people that keep pushing themselves and pushing themselves and they break through the wall and get their runners high and their second second wind. And then they feel amazing. And you just go and go and go and go and go. And what that is physiologically, biochemically, is that you forced your body into being able to mobilize energy, whereas normally it mm -hmm. wouldn't. And then you you are able to just run on your, your fat stores. Well, I live in that state. I'm always in my, my second wind. I'm always on a runner's high. So when I work out, I start making more energy because I'm doing more. Sitting here talking mm. to you, I'm making exactly the amount of energy that I need to sit here and talk to you. If I go start working out, I will make the energy that I need for whatever I'm doing. And you feel better when you burn more energy. This is why we take stimulants like coffee or you know, cocaine or whatever, because you're burning more energy. Like I feel amazing, right? And dopamine that helps. And, but when you're, when you, and that's why we take a lot of stimulants to get a bunch of energy to feel good so that we can go do a workout. When I start working mm. out, that's what makes me feel good. So I want to go work out. And the harder I work, the more energy I burn, the better I feel, the harder I want to work. And so it's a positive feedback loop as you just work harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And because you're constantly replenishing your blood, uh, your liver glycogen and muscle glycogen and uh, ketones and blood sugar, you won't run out of energy. You can just go and go and go. And this is why I do heavy workouts for like four hours. I do 20 sets of bench, 20 sets of squats, 20 sets of deadlift, 20 sets of shoulders. And I just go because I, I cap myself at 20 because I'm like, I just, I just, I just, you can just keep going. That, you know? <laughs> and yeah. And I, I stop myself at four hours because I'm like, I've got way too much shit to do. And now I don't even have that much time, you know, but, yeah. um, but you know, when I do, it's nice to do that, but I can do that and I can do more than that. So that, that's what that is. And so, you know, why not just live in that second win? Why not always be in that metabolic state? This has been shown as well. You know, people say that, well, you need the carbohydrates to, to have that burst of energy. Like, well, maybe like for long-term, like distance things or whatever, or yeah, I've heard it both ways. I've heard it like, well, for long distance, you know, maybe, you know, being in ketosis is, is a good thing because you can steadily make energy before like big explosive things like sprints or like a rugby game or something like that. You need the carbs um, or the other way around. Well, for explosive this, but for long term, I mean, I, I've heard it both ways. Yeah, they can't make their minds up, um, <laughs> but they're both, they're both wrong. Um, Tim, uh, Professor Noakes uh, has done experiments with this and he's had, you know, put people on treadmills, gotten a group keto adapted, fat adapted, you know, because it takes a bit of time for your body to uh, fully adapt. You're going to ketosis basically in 24 hours when your insulin comes down, but you're not perfectly able to, you know, metabolize all these things and utilize those energy sources as efficiently uh, at, at, at the beginning as you would in a couple of weeks. And he found that basically it's like two, three weeks and you'll be fine. This one, they left them for 42 days just to make sure that they were definitely fat adapted. And they had two groups, got one a fat adapted and one uh, was just eating carbohydrates, put them on the treadmill, worked them out, doing sprints, doing all these sorts of things, measured all their physiological markers and performance. And they found that they were performing at sort of the same level. Um, this wasn't a long-term thing looking, okay, going for three, four hours until they ran out of glycogen. This was just looking at their initial, like, can you really push yourself without carbohydrates, right? And they found that they, they could, and it was the same sort of thing. And then very interestingly, they switched the groups. So the group that was eating carbohydrates and they now put them, they keto adapted them. They're only eating, you know, uh, non-carbohydrate sort of things, fatty meat basically. And the other, other side, they started eating carbs again. 
waited another 42 days, tested them again. And they found they had the exact same output again and, and were able to push themselves just as hard. This didn't look at it in this, in this experiment, but it also comes with the advantage of being able to work at that high level indefinitely because you have weeks, even very slender people will have weeks and weeks and weeks of energy in their fat stores. Mm. Glycogen will run out in a couple hours. And so I don't care what your, your training is, what your game is, or your marathon or your ultra marathon is, unless you're like extremely emaciated, you will have enough fat to go through the whole thing without eating, without taking in any carbs and you'll be, and you'll be better for it. Well, this is, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of prolonged fasting and a lot of research on prolonged fasting. And I know that we can live off our fat stores. I think one of the longest fasts was over a year from a Scotsman that was like over 300 pounds or something, uh, yeah. or 500 pounds. He was, he was very, very obese. He lost like 300 he pounds. Just his, yeah. yeah. And yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it was wild. Right. And so this is super fascinating. Um, and I'm, I'm sold. I'm completely sold. That's why I'm transitioning mm -hmm. into, you know, my doing a minimum a hundred days, but again, it's one of these things. If I, if I find the thing that makes me feel like the superhuman state that I've been seeking my entire life, then mm -hmm. I'm going to stick to that my whole life. So talking about you transitioning will. into this sort of lifestyle, right? Um, you know, I've obviously been poisoning myself with sugar for the last three, four months, just as this particular dietary experiment. <laughs> and so I'm obviously in a state of glucose metabolism, principally for my energy. And I'm probably going to experience a lot of discomfort getting off of all the coffee and all the sugar and all of these different things. My mentality around transitioning was I was going to fast, essentially, uh, taking a vitamin E supplement to kind of help with any polyunsaturated fatty acid breakdown. There's some interesting research suggesting that that could create a lot of toxic byproduct if you break that down too quickly. So taking mm -hmm. a vitamin E supplement while fasting. So it's kind of like a soft fast in that sense until basically uh, I turn a keto strip purple and I'm, I'm demonstrating that I'm producing ketones. And then from there, it's just to eat meat. Would you say that there's a better way to transition into it? Because um, I'm thinking the main issue that I'm going to run into, I mean, I eat a whack ton of meat. There's no issue with digestion there. I don't think there would be any issues with the uh, you know, the, the bile production to break down the fats that I would need to, to eat or what, what have you. I think the main issue is actually going to be having energy from ketone production. Um, but any, any uh, tips or advice, you know, based on that plan on how I could optimize my transition experience a little bit better? Um, yeah, well, you know, you will have a withdrawal, right? Especially with sugar and things like that. Sugar, sugar is an addictive substance. It gives a dopamine response to the addiction centers of your brain, just like cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines. And there are actually studies with MRIs showing that sugar addicts kill the same areas of their brain as meth addicts to the same extent as meth addicts. It's, it's quite shocking when you see these sorts of things. It's why like, you know, people say, oh, don't you ever just have like, absolutely not. You know, I mean, that's like saying, <laughs> you know, like, don't you, don't you do meth just sometimes, just like on your birthday is like a special treat. Like, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. exactly, you know, and so, you know, when, when you look at those sorts of things, you say, I mean, absolutely not. I want, I want nothing to do with that stuff. So there is, there is a withdrawal and you will feel that, and especially, you know, coffee as well, caffeine, you might get some headaches, especially, you know, depending on how much coffee you drink some people don't get any problems with it but some people do don't and generally that's displayed in headaches and you drink a lot of water that can mitigate it and then in a couple of days they go away um generally it takes about two weeks for all the junk to get out of your system and for the withdrawals and the addiction to sort of go away and then after that you will literally feel like a superhero you will feel like a different breed of human and in a lot of ways you will be because your body will be working 
better than almost everybody else on earth. Um, as far as the transition is concerned on, on how, you know, if you want to fast, you want to do this or that, um, I think cold turkey is a very good way to do it. I don't think there's ever a bad time to stop eating poison. And so you just get rid of that stuff and get <laughs> it out of there. And eating meat will do the same thing as fasting and, and then some because you're actually getting nutrients as well. And so you're getting nutrients, you're getting fat. There are studies that look at just fasting and people that do long-term fast, sometimes they'll get hair loss, sometimes they'll get other you know, health issues. And they find that that's mitigated by even just having 100 grams of protein a day. And that seems to get rid of that. So I think there is an advantage to actually eating and just eating what we're supposed to eat. I think that fasting is great compared to what? Compared to eating a bunch of crap. And so the main thing right. is getting rid of all the, all the garbage. And so once you do that and you just get down to meat, you'll, you'll get, I think you'll get the same advantages. So I think that. The skin don't the fast? I don't think you need it. Yeah. I think you can just, just okay, cut straight, all right. into, straight into eating meat. Yeah. And you'll be fine and you'll start making ketones and your body will, will run on those and you'll feel great. And you just eat, eat what's comfortable to eat. A lot of people, because of those mechanisms that I discussed with carbohydrates, blocking leptin and insulin and, and the effects of ghrelin, et cetera, we tend to overeat just naturally. And mm -hmm that changes. Your hunger signals will be very, very different. And so you have to relearn your hunger signals. And sometimes you'll eat a lot less than you think. It's very easy to undereat on a carnivore diet or even just a keto diet because you're just, you're not as hungry as you would be. So I think you go by taste and if meat tastes good, then you should eat it. And I think that's a, that's a positive feedback that your body's giving you saying, Hey, we want these nutrients you know, bring them in. Eventually it'll stop tasting as good. So I, I try to cook more meat than I think I'm going to want. And I eat and eat until it doesn't taste good anymore. At first it tastes amazing. And people say, well, don't you get bored just eating the same thing? It's like, do cows get sick of grass? Do lions get sick of gazelle? Like, no, <laughs> I love it when they're hungry. Right. And so when I'm hungry, that means it's the best damn thing I've ever eaten in my life. And I say that to myself, like every day, I'm like, God, that's good. You know, every day I, I say it out loud. <laughs> I still think I'm ridiculous for saying it. I would catch myself and just sort of laugh at myself for still saying it, but I still say it. And at first it's the best damn thing I've ever eaten in my life. And it's the best damn thing. Best damn thing. It's good. It's really good. It's really good. It's good. It's okay. It's all right. And I get to the point where I'm like, I'm just, I'm just not really enjoying this. It's the same piece of meat cooked at the same time in the same conditions. Why doesn't it taste as good? Because my brain is telling me we don't need these nutrients anymore and you just naturally stop. And that's how that's natural portion control. That's a portion control that is in, inherent in all animals in the wild, right? You don't have these animals just overeating. You don't have, oh, it's just they don't have an abundance. They, they you know, they, they it's food's so scarce then. I'm like, really? You watch a nature show and you see a lion take down a buffalo. I mean, there's a lot of meat there. You know, the thing's not starving. <laughs> You know, and the king lion gets to eat as much as he wants of what he wants. He goes for the fatty stuff first, the belly fat and the interabdominal fat goes for that first and gets as much as what he wants called the lion's share. Right. That's why that's that's that. And and then only when he's done, the other lions get to come in. So he's like, OK, I'm done. You guys can have the scraps. So why doesn't he just sit there and just eat until he's just porked out and just like, oh, my God, you know, because. You know, he, because there's something in him that tells him that's enough. And so we, we have that, that ability as well when you're eating the right things. And so I go by taste. And so just, just eat meat when it tastes good and stop when it doesn't. Because some people are used to eating bigger volumes, especially when you're working out a lot. I did this too. I'm like, well, I have to eat because I'm working out so much. 
but I'm just not like steak just sounds terrible right now. And I was like, well, I have to eat it anyway, because I'm going to be, I worked out for six hours today. I'm going to work out for six hours tomorrow. Right. I need the energy, not realizing that I had at that point, probably a month of, of energy on my body that would have been just fine. And, and so I started eating this thing. I just got, you know, a bit of a way in. I was just like, I am just really not enjoying this. I just don't want to eat this. And so I put it in the fridge, went to bed. I was worried about the next day, not have, not feeling great. I felt amazing. Felt great. I did all my workouts, everything like that. Took the steak out. And now it's like cold and dry and hard. The fat's all like, you know, rock hard. Tasted amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> right? You know? And um, and that and that's what it was because my body wanted those nutrients. And so sometimes people, when they're used to a lot of other portions, uh, larger portions, uh, they'll cook a lot of meat and they'll think like, well, I have to finish this. I can't wait. I have to finish this. And so they get halfway through and they go like, oh, I, it takes me two hours to finish the meal. I have to force feed myself. I'm like, okay, that means your body's telling you to stop. Just stop. It's okay to have leftovers. I plan mm. to have leftovers on all of my meals. and I just eat the stuff the next day. It's fine. It lasts. Meat does not go bad. That's like, it's just not, it does go bad eventually, but it doesn't go bad that quickly. And so, you know, you, you can have leftovers. It's fine. So that's what I would do. I would just eat until meat stops tasting good and uh, eat as much as your body body wants you to eat. And then that's it. And just enjoy your life. Pretty straightforward. Do you have any concerns about cooking meat? Because I know we're not cats that, mm -hmm. you know, when you feed us cooked meat, we start to have intergenerational decrepancy. But like, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some interesting conversations happening within a carnivore community of like, you know, there are concerns with maybe heterocyc uh, heterocyclic amines and some of these, uh, you know, byproducts of cooked meat that could mm -hmm. cause some some potential damage. Do you have any concerns like that? Or do you just kind of think now, nah, whatever, I'll cook my meat and I'm, I'm fine? Yeah, not not much. You know, I mean, th those a, a lot of the studies that they did looking at that were in animal models, and they, um, you know, found increased you know associations with X, Y, and Z, and that's fine. But they did it at concentrations that are about twenty thousand times what you're going to find in a burnt <laughs> steak. You know, so it's like, what are we what are we really looking at here? You know, is this coming in the the proportions that are going to be causing harm? Also, you have to think about the fact that we have pretty good fossil evidence that our ancestors have been cooking meat up to 790,000 years ago, right? So that's, <laughs> Homo sapiens are 300,000 years old, right? That's, that's when we came about, right? So we've been cooking, our ancestors have been cooking for half a million years longer than Homo sapiens have, have been in <laughs> existence, right? So we did not only evolve with this, we evolved from this, right? Mm. And so our we evolved from people who were eating meat and we came as a, as a product of cooked meat. Does that mean that no one, uh, that there are populations that eat raw meat? Absolutely. Does that mean that, you know, you are diminishing and damaging some of the nutrients in raw meat? Yeah, that, that's true. You're also making some more bioavailable, however. And so- mm. I think that you just sort of eat what you want. If um, I generally like sear steaks and so it's still usually cold in the middle. So I'm eating raw, I guess you could say, <laughs> but I'm, I'm eating a mix. Right. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll cook things slowly in the smoker and all that sort of stuff. Um, sometimes as well. And that's amazing. You know, you do like a brisket, you do that really nice or rib. I mean, that's amazing. Mm. It's fantastic. And so, you know, and that breaks down the collagen that breaks down all this, this strong connective tissue, which you're not going to be, 
doing really well, just gnawing on that for the rest of your afternoon. Uh, and that makes those more bioavailable and you can get all that collagen. You can get all that, those nutrients as well. You know, you slow cook in a, in a pressure cooker, beef ribs or something else or, or lamb shanks and the, the bones get so soft. You can just chew the bones and just like eat those, you know, <laughs> so you're getting a lot of collagen and, and calcium and things like that there. So there, you, you do lose something when you cook things. There are these different, you know, uh, byproducts from cooking that in high enough doses could be a problem, but we've, we've been doing this literally long before homo sapiens ever existed. And so I think whatever's, whatever's happening there, we're more than adapted to it. Mm. Well, Dr. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. I realize we've already been talking for an hour and a half. I could ask you a million and one more questions and maybe I'll have you on for a follow-up episode as well, where we can dig into some other stuff for people who want to find your work other than the plant free MD podcast, which I am still making my way through. I'm still binging. Um, Where else can people find you and your work? Uh, yeah, well, well, thank you very much for having me on. It was a great, uh, conversation. It was, it was a pleasure to come on. Happy to do it again whenever. Um, uh, so the, the, the plant free MD podcast, as you say, that's on any, any platform people care to look at. And I, uh, have a YouTube channel, just Anthony Chafee, MD Chafee spelled C-H-A-F-F-E-E. And that's where a lot of my videos would go. I do a lot of shorts and things like that. I do lives, uh, live Q and a sessions there as well. And then my Instagram is, is just Anthony Chafee MD. And that's, uh, where I'll post a lot of things when a new podcast is coming out or a new video. And I have a link tree link in there as well. So people can find my, my other things as well. So, you know, Twitter and TikTok and other miserable things like that. But, but those are, those are <laughs> yeah. All the dopamine generators, right? Well, dude, thank you so much. This was a, a very enriching conversation. I really, really appreciate the fact that we were able to make it work when we're on opposite sides of the world yeah. from Canada all the way. I think you're in Perth, Australia, right? That's correct. Yeah. So on the West Coast. Yeah. So very far. <laughs> yeah. Literal opposite sides of the world right now. So this mm-hmm. is fantastic, too. Thank you so much. Uh, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, share, comment. Let us know what you thought of this episode. If you have any questions about the dietary points that we brought up, about any of the stuff that we talked about, I always love hearing counterpoints. I always love hearing people's thoughts and little debates that that's kind of open up. This is, you know, uh, to your point about uh, the things that you think that are right that just aren't so. I mean, the mm-hmm. whole point of these conversations are to uh, enrich knowledge and to get people thinking more critically about their health, their nutrition. Um, that's what the Art of Move Biomechanics podcast is about for us to think critically about how our body moves. And this is about how our body digests food and metabolizes energy. So uh, thank you for contributing to that. And then you can find me on Instagram at anthony.manuel, M-A-N-U-E-L-E. Please subscribe if you're on uh, Spotify. We just added video to Spotify, which is really, really cool. So if you're watching on YouTube, and but you prefer Spotify, we have video on Spotify now. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Art of Fuel podcast. And Dr. Anthony, thank you again. This was fantastic. We'll catch you guys on the next episode.